When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jay Bird. Fireworks filled the skies, a unicorn shed a rainbow, and my little pink water pistol went squirt, 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 squirt. <laughs> that and more. But before that, no one has time to go to the post office anymore. You know, the traffic, the lines, it's a hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com. It's one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices or an online seller shipping out products or a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle all of that with ease. You just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail. Once your mail's ready to send, just hand it to the mail carrier. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. We've been using it at Risk and the Story Studio for many years now, and we've always loved it. And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk now here's the show Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Micaiah McCraven behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Tramps Like Us. Three very different stories from three different cities. I gotta say, I am really feeling the spirit of spring right now. The spirit of... (laughs) <laughs> you know, refueling, reinvention, rejuvenation. We have had some hard years <laughs> recently. We have all, I think, felt for various reasons stressed, confused, disheartened. You know, it's been a lot. We've all been going through, I think. But there is spring. There is this way that nature reminds us to revive. And I think that's part of what sharing stories like these is all about. Creating something out of past experiences in the hopes that it will create new possibilities for those who are listening. So let's get right to that. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Sarah Brandt, who told a remarkable story when we were last in Milwaukee. But we're going to start here with Jay Bird. That's B-Y-R-D, who you can find at jamesdeanjbird.com. And his forthcoming memoir, Fumbling for the Knob, is on its way. Here is Jay Bird now with a story we call Got to Let It Show. Hi, y'all. 
All right, so I was born in the closet in a podunk Texas town, the son of a Bible-banging fundamentalist family. My father was a preacher who was very concerned about my masculinity, always giving me little tests, which I've always failed. I knew I was different from a young age, but I didn't really know what it was or why. Then in the eighth grade, some of the popular kids started calling me Gay Bird, and I realized I was letting my true colors shine a little too brightly, so I shuffled back into my closet and prayed for God to help me change, you know, make me normal, but obviously my prayers went unanswered. When I was 16, my father got really sick, and he had to have brain surgery, and beforehand he stood in front of the church and said, pray for God's help. And I sat in my pew thinking, yeah, we'll see about that. I mean, obviously I was angry with God for not helping me, so I wasn't about to pray for him to help my father. In fact, I secretly prayed that my father would die. And then he did. And I felt pretty guilty about that, but I was also kind of relieved, you know, because it meant I could tiptoe out of my closet now and again, which even that was something my father would never allow because real men don't tiptoe. I stopped going to church. I started making different fashion choices. At Christmas, somebody gave me a gift certificate, which I used at the mall to buy myself a pair of bright red parachute pants with zippers all up and down the legs. Very fashion forward for 1981, but also kind of gay. Okay, very gay. So gay, in fact, I was afraid to wear them outside of my bedroom. Well, about a year after my father died, I got a phone call from Julie, who had been my girlfriend in the seventh grade. Now, we hadn't spoken in about five years, but Julie was desperate for me to go with her to Las Vegas. Her best friend had just canceled on her, and her parents, of course, weren't going to let her go by herself. She said, I'm 99.9% guaranteed to meet Cher, Jay, and if you go with me, you're like 30 or 40% guaranteed to meet her, too. You see, the year before, Julie and her parents had gone to Vegas together for the first time. And uh, Julie's mother met Cher's keyboard player randomly on the elevator. And Julie started writing him letters. And then he sent her, like, one postcard that said, Next time you're in Vegas, look me up, which Julie took as an invitation. And she was not about to let this opportunity pass her by. She said, I swear to God, Jay, this trip will change your life. And I thought, well, maybe it's a sign. And even if it wasn't, I figured Sin City would be the perfect place to finally wear my parachute pants out in public. (laughs) So we went about convincing my mother to let me go. But because this was Cher's dream, I mean Julie's dream vacation, it was all about Cher. We had tickets to see the Cher show at Caesars Palace every night we were in town. Which was fine. I mean, I'd grown up watching TV variety shows like Sonny and Cher. You know, anybody seen Sonny and Cher? Remember those shows? I love that show. And this show was a lot like that, except with more songs and more flesh and uh, female impersonators, which is what they called drag queens in the 1980s. Well, Julie disappeared directly after we saw the Cher show for the first time. And when she returned, she had inside information on the whereabouts of a secret bar in Caesar's Palace where Cher's people and sometimes Cher herself hung out. So we made our way there sat in a booth in the very back corner and waited like stalkers. (laughs) As each dancer, backup singer, and band member arrived, Julie whispered their names to me because, you know, she was on the inside. And then when her keyboard player showed up, Julie darted across the room, and just as she got swallowed up by the crowd at the bar, I saw this mysterious, tall, Filipino man standing by himself. We didn't have Filipino people where I came from. So I was mesmerized by him. I wouldn't say he was particularly handsome. He was probably more pretty than handsome. Sort of like a a tan Barbie doll come to life. He held a crystal clear cocktail at shoulder height and with his other hand resting casually on his hip, he scanned the bar like somebody who could point at anybody and say that one and have them delivered to his room. When our eyes met, for a moment I thought, do I know you? But how could I? I didn't know anybody. 
He winked, and I blushed and busied myself with my parachute pants. Zip, 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 zip. <laughs> Didn't want my zipper to be down. <laughs> then a sultry voice broke my concentration. Oh, by your lonesome. I looked up, and there he was. The tall, tan, Filipino man, tableside. May I join you? I gulped. I'll take that as a yes. He plopped down next to me and slid close, his thigh pressing against my thigh. So, what's your name? Um, Jay? You're not sure about that? No, I am. I'm Jay. Jay Bird. Jay Bird? Well, hello, Jay Bird. I'm Jay C. I offered my hand like a man should, and he took it in both of his. They were soft and cool. So... What are we drinking, Jay Bird? Coke. Oh, wouldn't you care for something a little more stiff? Huh? He wagged his glass at me. A cocktail, Jay Bird. May I offer you a cocktail? Oh, no thanks. I drank a lot last night, and I have a bit of a hangover. I was trying to sound older. He leaned closer, his voice a juniper-tainted whisper, you know... I got a little something up in my room that'll cure whatever ails you. What is it? Mm, This and that and (laughs) cha-cha-cha. You're funny and you're adorable. (laughs) So, you're going to let me nurse that little head of yours? Uh, Oh, you don't have to go all the way up to your room for me. That's not what I'm talking about, Jaybird. I'm talking about us going up to my room together and figuring it out. Oh, Jaybird, your face just turned as red as your pants. A hand landed on my thigh. What are these, parachute pants? Uh-huh. So slippery. His hand slid between my legs. A, a tingle ran up my spine. Do you mind? I don't think so. I didn't. So... Shall we? Oh, you mean right now? He extracted his hand. What, are you going to go look for your little girlfriend or something? (laughs) Julie, she's not my girlfriend. Well, for a little while in the seventh grade, we were kind of girlfriend and boyfriend, but that doesn't really count. I should hope not. He grabbed my hand, pulled me out of the booth, across the bar to a bank of elevators with golden doors that reflected us like funhouse mirrors, making him even taller than before, making me even redder than before. We rode to the top floor in silence. Then I followed J.C. down a long hallway until he stopped. And we were there. He pushed the door open. Everything inside was so white. The carpet, the furniture, the curtains on the far wall of windows. It was like it was all made of light. I said, oh my God, this is heaven. J.C. smiled. That's right. And I'm your guardian angel. He snapped his fingers and pointed at a big round bed on that side of the room and disappeared in the opposite direction. So I sat timidly on the edge of the bed, my heart pounding with terror. Not because of J.C. I mean, obviously he was most likely the worst nightmare for my father, what the kind of man I might hook up with. But I felt safe with him for whatever reason, you know, special. J.C. could have had anybody he wanted in Las Vegas, but he picked me. No, I think the terror was more about the situation, which was decidedly outside of my closet. (laughs) A penthouse suite in Caesar's Palace with a Filipino man I just met in the bar downstairs and left with hand in hand. I mean, what the fuck? (laughs) J.C. reappeared in white silk pajamas and a floor-length see-through housecoat floating around his bare feet. Perfect! He zipped across the room, hit a button on the stereo, then danced his way back to me as Diana Ross blasted from the corner speakers. I'm coming out. He hopped onto the bed and stood over me, his feet at my sides. I'm coming out. I want the world to know. I got to let it show. There was definitely something familiar about him, his gestures, those eyes. He fell to his knees, and as my red pants reflected off of his silky whiteness, it suddenly dawned on me, Diana Ross was a special guest in the Cher show, but she was a man. Was this man? 
I couldn't help but wonder if my father was looking down from heaven trying to put this all together. Okay, my son is with a woman, all right, but she's a black woman, and uh, she's actually a Filipino man pretending to be a black woman. <laughs> Suddenly, I was in the middle of the big round bed, arms flung upward, legs tossed outward, my shirt came off, then my shoes and socks and rhythm. Next, my parachute pants floated down, down, down to the ground, followed by my dingy white briefs. I lay there naked, pink and erect, an oozing stamen ready for pollination (laughs) perched on my hip bones JC stuck out his long red tongue licked across his palm and put his hand beneath the silk then suddenly some unseen part of him swallowed me whole and bam the Caesar's Palace fountains erupted in a water dance fireworks filled the skies a unicorn shattered rainbow and my little pink water pistol went squirt 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 I'm pretty sure I was not exactly what J.C. expected when he picked me up in the bar that night. But for me, it was the most amazing experience of my life. Transformative. It was my first consensual, guilt-free, gay sex experience. Yeah. The next morning, I woke up, squeezed out from under J.C., went to pee. Then I poked my head into his walk-in closet, and there were wigs and high heel shoes and gowns and feather boas, and I thought, my God, how amazing it must be to be this man. I mean, not because he was a famous drag queen that performed with Cher every night in Las Vegas, but because he was free and gay and fabulous, and, and with him I was too. I guess I kind of got lost in there because a a rusty voice beckoned from the big round bed, Jay Bird, you better come out of that closet. So I did, but only briefly. You see, that night in Las Vegas, that weekend in Las Vegas, changed the way I saw the world and the way I saw myself. And I knew the direction my life would eventually take, but I also knew it was never going to happen while I was still living in that podunk little Texas town. So... I stayed in the closet and waited. When I was 24, I moved to New York City to be a writer and a performer, but mostly to come out. And eventually I wrote a solo show called Naked as a Gay Bird. And it started with me in drag, singing, I'm coming out. I want the world to know I got to let it show. But I wasn't impersonating Diana Ross, no. I like to think of it more as an homage to my guardian angel, JC, who I'm sure is smiling down on us tonight. Thank you. Leafa, the first day I moved to the village of Faleasau on the island of Tau, which is in the American territory of American Samoa, and I was living in this village of 100 people, and I was there to teach fifth grade. And the first day I was there, I was introduced to this woman, Leafa, and I was told she would be the person I needed to know there because she owned the only store in the village, and she also would be my access to cashing my checks in a village that did not have a bank. She would be my access to getting mail in a village that did not have a post office. So she was like the person to know. So someone introduced me to her, and I loved her right away. She was 
this wonderful woman, she had this kind of crooked smile and she had this graying hair that was always up and she always looked kind of disheveled because she ran the store all by herself. And so she'd be down at the dock like lugging pallets of soda off the boat and up on a ladder stocking shelves. And she was just really strong. She was kind of an older woman. And then you'd see her on Sunday and she'd be dressed in all white and just looked really beautiful. And she was this really dynamic woman. We became friends right away. And as I was moving there and settling into this culture, I found Samoan culture to be really interesting and Samoan people to be really warm and friendly outwardly, but be kind of guarded. And it was really hard to break in and to make friends there. And I really felt isolated. I hadn't made a lot of friends and, and Layafa took me under her wing and befriended me. And so I'd spend all of my time there helping her with her store, having dinner together. We would sit around after dinner, sit outside on the stoop and, you know, kill mosquitoes with those like electric tennis racket things and and sit there and drink soda and just talk about everything and nothing. And most often our conversations would come back to her son, Keith. And Layafa had never been married and she had one son and he was the apple of her eye. She just loved this boy so much. And her house was like a shrine to him. She had his football jerseys up all over the walls and she had his old helmets and she had this big framed photograph that was on the cover of a magazine because he had been a football player. He played football for the University of Hawaii for four years and then he played professional football in Japan for six years. And so he was kind of like a local star. The island was so proud of him and she was so proud of him and she just wanted to talk about him all the time. And one night we're sitting there and we had just finished dinner. She had made fried chicken for dinner and we're washing it down with some lemonade she had made from this like big sagging lemon tree in her backyard. And we're sitting there outside chatting and she says, you know, Keith, I can't wait for you to meet Keith. Keith is a really good son. A couple years ago, I had cancer, and I had to go to the mainland, and I had to spend six months in California getting chemotherapy. And Keith took six months off work, and he was there with me the entire time. And he fed me, and he bathed me, and he was by my side. And I'm just so grateful to have a son like him, and I'm so glad he's moving home. And he was coming back to Manua. He was moving home for the first time in 10 years and she was just over the moon and I just could not wait to meet him. And so in October, Keith shows up, the famous Keith, and I meet him and he is wonderful. He's this big, tall man. He's like 300 pounds of muscle, super cute. And I liked him right away, but I thought, oh no, you know, stay away. This is Layafa's like mama's boy. I knew he was off limits. So I thought, okay, whatever, we'll just be friends. And he was great. He had this infectious laugh and he loved to have fun and he always wanted to go on adventures. So he'd always want to go spearfishing or kayaking or go swimming late at night or go drive up through the mountain and look at the stars. And I really didn't have many friends there. And so I found in him a new friend and we started spending a lot of time together and I really enjoyed his company. Then Thanksgiving rolled around and I was talking to him one night over a couple beers and I was saying, you know, Thanksgiving is one of the days that it's hardest for me to be away from my family. It's one of my favorite holidays and I had spent years living away from the States, but uh, Thanksgiving still felt really hard. It was a day I wanted to be near my family and I wanted to be near my culture and it was difficult to be away. And he just looked at me and said, you know, I get it. I, I lived in Japan for six years. I didn't speak any Japanese. I certainly didn't look anything like the people there. I, you know, holidays would come up and I couldn't eat the food I wanted to eat. And none of my family ever came to visit because it was so far away. I was all alone. And he really got it. And it was the only person on that island who I felt like really understood what I was going through living in this foreign culture and being all alone. So we really connected. And I started kind of having feelings for him. But then I thought, Hell no, I, I have to stay away from Layafa's son, like this is not happening. And so we're all hanging out as friends and one night Layafa goes and works in the store and we'd finished dinner and Keith and I go out to hang out in the Fale, which is like the covered porch. And we're sitting out there and we're on the concrete floor, he's laying down and I'm sitting next to him and we're just talking. And then all of a sudden his hand is on my leg and his other hand is on my stomach and he starts looking at me and I said, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, your mom can see us right now. He's like, no, don't worry about it. She doesn't have to know about it. And I was like, no, seriously, stop touching me. Your mom can see us. Like, this is not cool. And he was like, okay, come on. Let's go down by the water. So we walked down to the beach, which is very close by. <laughs> so his mom could probably still see us there. And 
there's this like rotting old log where we used to sit and and watch the kids play in the water and he sits down he pats the log next to him and tells me to sit down next to him and so we're sitting there talking my heart is racing and i'm already feeling like ooh, this is a bad idea but then i'm sitting right by him and he's so sexy and he like i can you know feel him breathing and, and he's right next to me and and he leans in and kisses me and i go home like a 13 year old and write in my journal <laughs> I shit you not, I write, I kissed Keith tonight, all caps, what am I doing? <laughs> and so it, from then on, it was just like this revolving door of what am I doing? Like, I was just doing more and more ridiculous things every day. I was sneaking around with him. I'd like sneak him into my house late at night and have quiet sex so our neighbors couldn't hear. And like, you know, he'd, he'd come out late at night and like tell his mom he was going on an errand and instead pick me up and like drive up the mountain. And so we were sneaking around and anyone who's lived in a small town knows like there are no secrets. I was living in a village of 100 people. So the fact that I thought there was like a secret about this is totally ridiculous. But, you know, I felt like we were sneaking around and we were having a great time. And then finally, Leafa leaves for a week. She goes to the main island to visit family. And I'm in heaven because I'm like, oh, finally, you know, we can hang out and be normal people. And so I'm going over to his house every day after work and hanging out at his house. And the house is attached to the store. And as I mentioned, the store is the only store in the village. So everybody's coming to the store, seeing me at their house. And at this point, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm fucking doing it. And so I am there like, just like, fuck it, I'm going to do whatever I want. And so I'm at their house and I'm sleeping there and people are seeing me there. And I just feel like, well, you know, it's too late now. I'm just going to go for it. And, and so one night we are in his room having sex and it's the tropics it's like 110 degrees all the time and it's like 95 percent humidity the air is just thick it's like your earrings rust and like mold grows on your shampoo bottles like it's so disgusting and so we're having sex and we're just drenched in sweat and he leans and goes well there's a ceiling fan in my mom's room Before you know it, I'm not only in Leafa's house when she's not there, I am fucking her son who's off limits, and I am fucking him in her bed. (laughs) So I'm just like going for it, I'm doing, you know, doing my thing, and then she comes back to the island, and I kind of feel it out, and I feel like she doesn't know, she hasn't heard, somehow, miraculously. And so it's Saturday, and I make this banana bread, and I wanted to bring it over, to give to her and Keith. And Saturday is bingo day. And it's like the big social event of the week is bingo. And they, they host bingo at their house. And all the women from all over the island come. And they sit in the gravel under the coconut trees. And they have their little boards and their little bingo daughters. And I walk up and everybody's there. And Keith and Leafa are running around like chickens with their head cut off. Like, you know, gathering money and giving out bingo papers. And I think, oh, I'm not going to bother them. I'll just go and set this banana bread in the store. So I walk up the stairs to the store. And I set down the banana bread. And as I turn to leave, I hear Leafa like storming up the steps. And she says, what is that? And I said, oh, it's just, it's just some banana bread I made. I brought it for you and Keith. She's like, take it. I said, what? She's like, take it. I don't want it. I don't want your food. I don't want you. I don't want you anywhere near my house or my son. Leave. And she picks it up. And she looks like she's going to throw it at me. And she shoves it at me and I grab it. And she was like, get off my property. And I'm telling you, Everyone was there. Everyone was there, like my students' mothers and my students and their sisters. And it was just fucking humiliating. And she yelled at me. I could feel my face. It was like burning hot. And I left like with my tail between my legs just thinking like, what the fuck have I done? And I was so humiliated. And I kind of just was living in fear like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? And then... She leaves again, and I was like, oh, great, now I can go back to their house and, you know, fuck her son in her bed and, like, do all the things that I wanted to do, and, and she was gone, and so we kind of went back to, like, living in this fairy tale, like, oh, your mom doesn't know about this, and so I'm back there hanging out, everybody knows about it, and I'm just kind of trying to forget the fact that Leafa's coming back, and then Leafa comes back, and she comes back to the island, and the first day she's back, She's at home with Keith, and he's walking around in their house with his shirt off, and she sees a mark on him. (laughs) 
And she goes up to him and says, who did that to you? And he's like, I don't know. And, <laughs> and she's like, I know who did that to you. I know you've been seeing that girl, and I know you've been in my bed. And she comes after him with a knife. <laughs> and he's this huge, strong guy, and she's kind of smaller, and so he just kind of holds her off. And then she's trying to attack him, and he holds her away, and, and she says, that's it, I'm going to her house. And he doesn't call me. He doesn't let me know. So I'm just sitting at my house, like, you know, reading a book. My door is open because I live in a village of 100 people. My door is always open. So I'm just sitting there reading a book, and I hear her coming. I hear these, like, angry footsteps through the gravel. And before she gets to my house, she's already screaming at me. She's like, Julia, let me in. And I was like, no. I got up real quick, closed the door, and I, I said, no, I'm not letting you in. She's just She's like, let me in right now. And I said, no, you're clearly angry. I'm not letting you in. So she goes over to the screen on my window and like presses her face up against the screen. And she's just laying into me. And she's just like, you whore. My son was not like this before you. You changed him. He was a good boy. And she's just going after me. And I'm sitting there just taking it. And then at a certain point, I realized like, fuck this. Like, your son is 28 years old, and he played professional football for 10 years. You think I'm the first woman he slept with? And, 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 you know, she's, like, attacking me when I'm thinking, your son came after me. And so, finally, something in me just snapped, and I just thought, you know what? Fuck you. And so I go right up to the screen, and I pull down the top of my shirt, where I had bite marks across my chest. And I said, yeah, I taught your son how to do this. And she flipped the fuck out. (laughs) And she just started screaming at me in English and Samoan, telling me I was a whore. And she was going to beat the shit out of me next time she saw me. And I am going to fucking murder you. And then she just up and leaves. She just turns and walks away. And I think, oh my God, what have I done? Like, my life is in danger. And, And from there on out, I just live in fear. Like, I just... I, her house is and her store is right in the middle of the village so to go see anyone else on the other side of the village I have to walk past her house and it just gives me this pit in my stomach every time and I have to see her at church and I have to see her at school functions and every time I see her I'm terrified that she's actually going to hurt me and she doesn't but I'm just living it, it I'm just <laughs> she doesn't but I never know when she might and I'm living in fear and finally I decide like this is no way to live like I don't want to be here with somebody who hates me and wants to hurt me and so I decide it's coming up to the end of my first year on my two-year contract in uh, this school and I decide to leave I was like no I don't want to be here anymore living under these conditions so I asked my principal to meet after school and I go into her office And I said, no one was talking about this, but I obviously knew everyone knew, right? And so I said, I know that you know what's going on with Leafa. I can't live here anymore. I feel scared for my life, and I feel like nobody has my back, and I don't want to be here anymore, so I'm leaving. And she just kind of nodded, and you could feel she was kind of on board with it. And she... (laughs) She said, you know, because of the way the contracts work, you shouldn't tell anybody that you're leaving because then you won't get paid. So you need to tell them at the beginning of the next school year. So you just need to leave as if you're coming back. So I couldn't say goodbye. I couldn't tell my students I was leaving. I couldn't tell any of my friends in the village I was leaving. I just kind of had to pack everything up with my tail between my legs and leave. And it was really humiliating. And finally, you know, I've spent my last days there and I told Keith that I'm leaving and I packed all my things up, and my last day, my landlord takes me to the airport, this tiny, tiny little airport. I mean, this island has 700 people on it. So I'm sitting in this airport. There's no walls on this airport. It's just like a roof and a few chairs. And who rolls up but Leafa? And Leafa gets out of her truck with her niece, June, and they sit in the chairs that are farthest away from me, which is like 10 feet away. And... And she comes and sits down, and I just think, this is it. This is how my life ends. And, you know, this is the woman who welcomed me to this island, and this is the woman who's going to take me off this island. And so I'm just kind of accepting my fate at this point, and she, I can feel her, like, just staring daggers at me. I was just trying to do anything I could to not look at her, and I was so scared. And finally, the tiny little plane arrives, and we get on the plane. June, her niece, who was a coworker of mine, said, Layafa told me to call her immediately if she saw me with if, she, if I saw you with Keith on the main island. 
because Keith was there to pick me up on the main island. So I said, please don't call her. But I get to the main island and Keith's there and we get to spend like these last few days together being a normal couple because we're not in fear anymore. We're not hiding and worrying that someone's going to see us and tell his mom. And so we get this nice hotel room and we travel around the island. We go swimming and and we just get to be a normal couple and are having a great time. And our final night together, we go to this restaurant on the beach and we're sitting there in the sunset and we had eaten this shrimp and they were drinking these like amazing pina coladas. And, and he takes my hand and he says, please don't go. I'll talk to her. We'll figure it out. You haven't told anyone yet officially that you're leaving. Just take the summer. I'll talk to her. We'll figure it out. You can come back. Please don't go. But in my heart, I knew I was already gone. And so I left that island knowing I would never return. And for years, I felt really defensive about what had happened. And I felt like what the fuck? Nobody had my back. Like I, I didn't even do anything wrong and everybody turned against me. And it took a long time to come to this, but it honestly wasn't until I decided to pitch the story to risk that I really thought about it and realized like, man, I fucked up. Like I, I had this idea of myself as someone who could go into these other cultures and like assimilate and immerse myself in other cultures and be respectful. But I had blatantly ignored everyone's warnings not to do this. Because I thought, well, in my culture, it's okay for a 26-year-old to decide to sleep with a 28-year-old, you know, and that's no big deal to me. But it had, been not, it had not been okay in their culture, and I had ignored that. I started really thinking about it as I was working on this story, and I was talking about it with my boyfriend, and he said, why don't you write her a letter? And so I wrote Leofa a letter this week, and I know it'll take two months to get to that tiny island, and I don't know if she'll read it. And I don't know if she'll burn it. And I don't know what will happen to it. But I know that I ended the letter by saying, you are my first and best friend on that island. And I fucked it all up. And I'm so sorry. Thank you. is risk this is neil finn behind me now and we just heard from sarah brandt in milwaukee before that a little um, bit of the chic mix of diana ross's i'm coming out now our final story on this week's episode is quite a special occasion this is the first time in the history of the show that a close relative of mine Someone with the Allison name (laughs) is appearing on the podcast. My cousin-in-law, who I am so proud of, can be found at MarcellaAllison.com. Her book of collected wit and wisdom on life and business by female entrepreneurs is called Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This Shit Before? (laughs) And it'll be published this month. You can find out more about that at MarcellaAllison.com. Here she is now. This is Marcella Allison at the Risk Live show in my hometown of Cincinnati with a story we call, The Only Life You Can Save Is Your Own. 
for the last 10 years, whenever my life is completely crazy and I need to run away, I would call my good friend Joanne Gates, and Joanne is the director of the Retreat Center at Knobs Haven in Loretto, Kentucky. And I had this short little email I would send her, and it would say, Dear Joanne, any room at the inn? And because Joanne knew what my life was like, the answer was always, yes, come on down. So that's how in uh, March of 2015, I find myself flying down the Bluegrass Parkway, headed towards Loretto, Kentucky. I got Jason Isbell on the radio. I got the windows cranked. I'm like singing along at the top of my lungs. And about two and a half hours later, I pull up this long drive to the mother house. I park my car. I grab my backpack, my journals, my pens, and I climb three flights of perfectly polished, within an inch of their lives, wood stairs to the top of the academy building. And there's this little room at the top. There's this beautiful double bed, little quilt. I throw my stuff on the bed. I open these huge green shutters and the windows overlook Baden Pond, put on my tennis shoes, and I'm headed out to walk the labyrinth and to meditate in the little chapel out at the Cedars of Peace. And I get maybe, I don't know, half a mile down the little gravel road, and my cell phone goes off. And I'm looking at it, and I I don't recognize the number. And I answer, and I'm like, hello? And this voice goes, Ms. Allison? Ms. Allison? Yes? Ms. Allison, this is Amber from that facility in St. Louis. And um, I'm just calling to tell you that you're going to have to meet and come get Jake by Friday, your son, because um, we're closing. And I said, what are you talking about? I just paid to fly this kid from Cincinnati to St. Louis. He is supposed to be there for three months. What are you talking about? And I hang up the phone, and I want to take it and throw it as hard as I can at the tree. But I don't. I turn around, I go marching back down the gravel farm road, up to the first floor of the academy building, over to Joanne's office, bam, bam, bam on the door. And Joanne goes, Marcella, you're here. You made it. And I say, I can't take this anymore. And she goes, come in, sit down. And there's these two little rocking chairs and there's a little table and there's a candle and some sage, right? And we sit down and she takes my hands in hers and she says, how are you? And I say, you know that facility in St. Louis? You know the one that looked like some million dollar spa on the internet? the one that promised they could deal with mental health and addiction, that they were going to cure Jake and send him back out into a contributing member of society? I'm like, get this. They are closing because there's more money in detox. I have spent three months getting the insurance approved so that he could stay there for like, I don't know, three to six months, and he's been there two weeks, and they are sending him home, and I am done, and I cannot do this anymore. And she looks at me, and she leans in, and she says in this incredibly calm, steady voice, then don't. And I say, you don't understand Nobody wants these kids. The mental health institutions don't want them because they say they're just addicts. We don't do that here. And the rehab centers don't want them because they say, oh, they're crazy. We don't do that here. And the insurance companies sure as hell don't want them. And there is no place else for him to go. I have been running a rehab center and a psychiatric ward out of my living room for five years, and I cannot do this one day more. And she says, then don't. 
And I say, you're not listening to me. There is no place else to send him. I have to bring him home. But how is that fair to his brother, Nathan? He shouldn't have to grow up in a psychiatric ward. He's only 16. I can't do this. I cannot do this. And she says, then don't. And the next day, I get up. I pack up all my stuff again. I head back down the Bluegrass Parkway. I am staring at the sky, waiting for answers that aren't coming. And I'm thinking, how in the hell did we end up here? Jake was this sweet kid. He played blues guitar. He drew portraits, charcoal portraits of muddy waters and Homer that like could hang in a museum. He wrote me the most beautiful valentines. One time he took all of his uh, paintings, he was maybe fourth grade from the new school that he'd done over all the years, and he put price tags on them, you know, like 50 cents, a dollar, like two dollars for the really big ones. And he hung them all around our living room. And he goes to the kitchen and he cut up some cheese and he got a bottle of open wine. And he had an art opening in my living room, right? We would go to the Appalachian Festival every year. We'd eat like corn dogs and lemon shake-ups and those like fried elephant ear things, right? And I am thinking, how? How is that boy the same boy that has tried every drug on the planet. My sister used to say that it was like the perfect Montessori drug addict because he just followed his natural curiosity to ecstasy and cocaine and methamphetamines and methadrone and bath salts. And I'm thinking, why would someone want to snort my lavender-scented bath salts? I mean, isn't a neti pot easier, right? But it turns out it's not quite the same thing. It is like this psychotic mix, right, that causes, like, seizures and psychosis and insomnia and scrambles your brains like that old commercial, right, with the egg, right, in the frying pan, And I don't know how that boy became this boy, but I know that I can't do this anymore. And I'm driving down the Bluegrass Parkway, headed back to Cincinnati, and I'm looking at that berm, right? And I'm thinking, if I just let this drift about three feet to the right, My car is going to go through the guardrail. It's going to go down the ravine. And I do not have to get up and do this tomorrow. And I don't have to be the kind of mother who abandons her son. And I take a deep breath. And I look at the sky. And I am thinking, I am done. I am so done. And Jake, Jake has gone from using methamphetamines to dropping out of college. He's attempted suicide four times in five years. He's climbed into the bathtub with his amplifier on Christmas Eve because no one told him that an amplifier is designed to turn off when it hits water. Good to know. He's tried to hang himself in my garage on Mother's Day. And I am at the end. There is nothing left to give. And I wish that I could tell you that I was sitting here praying and begging for mercy, but actually what I do at that moment is get really pissed. As my girlfriend says, I take my shoes off. I'm like, you son of a bitch. What kind of sick fuck makes people suffer like this? Who the hell are you? And why are you doing this to me? Do you hear me? I'm done. You take him back. He's yours. I cannot do this anymore. And I stopped to get gas in Lexington. And in the back of my mind, I hear Joanne. Then don't. And I head across the river back into Cincinnati. And I hear, then don't. And I pull up my driveway. I get out. I throw all my crap back in the house. I go up to my husband, Tom. And I say, I am done. I cannot do this anymore. We cannot run 
a rehab center and a psychiatric ward in our house. I am done. And he says, me too. So the next day we get up, we drive down to Clifton, and we rent a little bitty apartment above the graders that's about the size of my dining room table. And then we head over to St. Vincent de Paul off of Glenway Avenue, and I got my little cart, and I'm like, ooh, look, four neon green coffee cups, three pieces of lovely china, good set of nicely used silver, huge ashtray, an old armchair, throw it all in the back of the car. We take everything of Jake's from the house, put it in the van, head over to the Kroger. We get that huge bag of fake Fruit Loops, big thing of um, pizza rolls, a bunch of burritos, anything that goes in the microwave, some milk, some orange juice. We stock the whole apartment. We go to pick up Jake at the airport. He gets off the plane. He's like, hey, mom. Hey, dad. He's just glad to be home, right? He reeks of cigarettes. He's got a bag of all his clothes. We put him in the car, and we do not drive home. We drive right down the street to this little bitty apartment, and we bring him upstairs, and we drop him off, and I say, dude, here's the deal. Your rent is paid for 30 days. You got food in the refrigerator. Your medication is right there on the table. You've got your clothes. There's an AA meeting down the street. It's on you now. Give me a call in the morning. We get in the car. We head back home. And again, I wish I could tell you that I stayed up all night, like praying to the Virgin Mary to save my son. But I was so tired. I drank a glass of wine, and I went to bed. Next morning, I'm not even awake yet, right? My phone rings, and I figure it's one of two things. It's either Jake or it's the police telling me i got to come identify the body. I answer the phone. Hello? Hey, Mom, it's Jake. I'm up. I've had a cup of coffee. The AA meeting starts in 30 minutes. I'm headed down there. Hey, I just wanted to say I really love this place. This is really great. And I am looking at my phone like aliens have just landed on the planet. And I'm like, uh, that's great, dude. That's good, good, right? And every day after that, I'm like waiting for that other shoe to drop. But instead, he goes like one month sober, then two months sober, then three months sober. And one day I say to him, like, dude, what's the deal? Like, what happened? And he goes, you know, Mom, when you left me in that apartment and you said it was on me, I didn't have to feel guilty for ruining your life anymore. And I'm like, whoa, right? So at this point, we ain't using the bath salts, but the brain is still a little scrambled. So he comes over to dinner at our house one night, and he is completely paranoid and anxious, and he's smoking cigarettes, he's walking in and out, he's like, and I say, let me take you back home. So we jump in the car, I'm driving him back down to the little apartment here, and we're coming through Mount Airy Forest, and he is just being an asshole. And I say, what is with you? We are all here trying to help you. Like, everything we are doing is to help you. Why are you being such a jerk to me? And that is when he tells me about the code. It turns out that everything I say actually has a different meaning. And it turns out that I love you means basically you're a piece of shit. And I say, dude, what are you talking about? And he says, mom, the radio is broadcasting my thoughts. And the movie screen is showing my life. The people in the apartment next door to me can hear the thoughts in my head. And for just a moment, I let myself imagine what that would be like if that was true. Because in his mind, in Jake's mind, that is true. So I imagine what would it be like if you had no privacy, not even in your own mind, if you could never have a thought that was not broadcast. And I suddenly understood all those suicide attempts. And I said to him, Bud, you have my word. If we ever get to the point where there is nothing else we can do, I swear to God, I'll help you do this. I'll help you commit suicide. I will not make you live your life like that. But we are not there yet. We have not done everything. Just stay with me a little bit longer and promise you'll keep trying. And he says, okay, mom. 
And the next week, we're headed off to Dr. McDonald's office, and we're in the car, and Jake is really anxious, and his leg is going bam, bam, bam on the floor, and his arm's going boom, boom, boom on the door, and he's punching the radio station buttons one after another. And I think, you know what? Screw it. Just screw it all. And I reach over, and I hit the button for the golden oldies station, (laughs) and I just let it rip. In the day we sweated out on the streets of a runaway American dream. And he looks at me like I have lost my mind. I don't even care at this point. At night we ride through mansions of glory on suicide machines. And he loses it. He is cracking up so hard. I am doing 60 in a 30-mile zone. We peel into Dr. McDonald's office. Jake and I are rocking out. We're screaming, tramps like us. Baby, we were born to run. And that's when I stop trying to control him, fix him, save him, make him do the thing that I think that he needs to do. And he begins to trust me. And we begin to talk about this code. And we begin to do check-ins that are kind of like Peta Malark in The Hunger Games when he has the tracker jacker, remember? And he would have to ask Katniss, real, not real, about his memories. So Jake will call me and say, Mom, they were talking about me in English class today when we were reading this poem, real or not real. And we started to use the Socratic method. Well, if it was real, what would that mean? Then that would mean this. So if that's not true, then this is not true. And then he begins to trust my husband with check-ins. And then his grandma goes to NAMI, to the National Alliance of Mental Illness class, And she starts to do check-ins. And then he starts to ask his AA buddies to do check-ins. And then he says, Mom, I want to go back to school. And then he passes one class. And then two. And last semester, he just got straight A's at the University of Cincinnati. And he got his one-year coin. And I finally understood that all those years... When I was trying to save Jake, the only one who could save Jake's life was Jake. And the only one who could save my life was me. And the only life that any of us can ever save is our own. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is The Boss behind me now. And we just heard from Marcella Allison. Be sure to go to M-A-R-C-E-L-L-A-A-L-L-I-S-O-N.com <laughs> to look for Marcella's new book for female entrepreneurs called Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This Shit Before? And... Let's hear it for Jake Allison, such an inspiration. Keep on keeping on, Jake. I think a lot of people are rooting for you right now. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. 
Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. It's true. What? What? It's true. It's what? A sleazy tramp. Oh, boy. That, is that what he means is true? Yeah, I think so.